Welcome to First Presbyterian Church of Evanston. This Sunday's message was given by First Pres Interim Senior Pastor, Reverend Dr. Tassie Green. If you'd like more information about First Presbyterian Church of Evanston, please visit firstpresevanston.org. Our scripture reading today is from the Gospel according to John, through 17. You'll find that in the Pew Bible on page 86 of the New Testament section. It will also be behind me on the screen. Please join me in a prayer. Heavenly Father, by your Spirit, tell us what we need to hear and show us what we ought to do to obey Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. The Apostle has declared, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of a Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. John the baptizer testified to him, and he cried out, This was he whom I have said. He who comes after me ranks ahead of me, because he came before me. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. The law indeed was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This morning, in light of baptism, in light of so many families and kids gathered here today, we're going to take this opportunity to talk about another thing for which we are thankful, another gift of God, and that is children, the next generation. Gratitude is my word for when we combine God's greatness, gratefulness, our attitude together, and we get gratitude, something greater. So what does it take to engage the next generation in faith and in the church community? Many of us have been asking that question, and it's something that has been so interesting to me that while I'm no expert, I have been a family pastor, I've been a youth pastor, and I did my studies for my doctor of ministry at Fuller Seminary on passing on faith through, family, or through families to the next generation. And so I don't know everything about it, but one of the things that I've really been fascinated with is how the research suggests that there are new messages of the gospel of grace that can be designed for the next generation, that can answer the questions they're asking. This research that I'm looking at today that I'm sharing with you comes from a book called Growing Young, put out by Fuller Youth Institute and Kara Powell, uh, a search that was done of churches that are engaging the next generation well. And it's called Churches Engaging Young People, or KEEP is the study. And so what are the three questions that young adults have? Well, who am I? Where do I fit in? What difference do I make? They probably sound familiar because they're actually the questions that all of us have, all of us face, but some of us have put them on the back burner for a while. If we have started to answer one and are on our way, we may put that aside until it comes up again, until something changes, perhaps through moving or retirement or a new chapter of life. 
But these are the questions that students, that young people live with every day. And we need to pay attention because our students, our youth, all these kids that were gathered here are not just the church of tomorrow. They're the church of today. And we can learn a lot from them about what it looks like to be the church in the midst of this current moment in time. There's one student who every week turns in prayer requests, not only for his family, but for the whole world. We could all learn from him. There's three students that have pledged as part of our annual pledge campaign and set an example for the believers. As Tim, 1 Timothy says, don't let others look down on you because you are young, but set an example. They are doing that. Many of you, even in my interview, and in the first three months I've been here, have been asking, how do we continually reinvent ourselves? How do we become more relevant to young families, children, youth, Northwestern students, professors, our community around us? Well, first, I say you should probably ask them, not just ask me, not just ask one another. It's hard to get answers if people aren't represented here. But these are a few things that I have learned that I will share with you. The questions that other people, that youth are asking, are basically about how does faith relate to my life, to my big questions. And growing young churches listen and empathize in their congregations and offer help, walk alongside people in those big questions. They, one of the things is that churches that are growing young take Jesus' message seriously, all the things that Jesus asked us to do, and churches model what I call robust grace. By the way we relate to one another and to our community, by the way we care tangibly, we can help others as they begin or solidify a relationship with Jesus. We can point to who Jesus is. We can help them find some of the answers that they long for, or at least walk alongside in the questions, because we find, too, that there's not one certain right answer to all the big questions. We can help with more than our words, but our words do matter. We find that they can help or hinder young adults, students, children on their quest, on their questions. I'm sure many of us, if I asked, could raise a a hand to remember a time when someone said something to you about faith that wasn't helpful to you in pursuing your life of faith, whether it was condemnation or whether it was excluding people or whether it was just unkind. Many of us have experienced that along the way. How do we show and shine Jesus' love? keeping the main things of the gospel, the center point of who we are. You see, something that was shown in the research is that many of us aren't sure how to talk about faith. And some of us have, in the process of going through church or watching our parents, caught a little different version of the gospel. Do you all know that more about the gospel, more about faith, is caught than is taught. Much more happens by watching others live it out or not live it out, as the case may be. That's why I often tell parents that one of the most powerful ways for your kids to learn faith 
is by catching you in the act of praying or reading your Bible. And for some reason, it's especially powerful when children and youth see their fathers do so. But mothers, fathers, grandmas, and grandpas can all play a strong role. I've mentioned to some of you that my grandparents prayed for the unborn generations and their spouses daily. And I knew that they did that. That's part of my story and my husband's story, who came from a family that was against the gospel. But what are the obstacles? We generally get what we are, what we model, is what the research shows. When raising kids faith-wise, they copy or they catch on to what we are more often than what we say. I'm not saying that to judge us. We're all on a faith journey at all ages, but we have found that there's some drawbacks to that. More faith is caught by kids, but what we've gotten with millennials and beyond is what we might call a gospel of niceness. The official name you may have heard of is moral therapeutic deism. What's that? It's faith misunderstood as being good or nice. That's moral. Just being moral is enough. Or a means of feeling better about ourselves, which could be therapeutic. If we believe in Jesus, we're loved. It can be self-therapy. Or the third factor of it is that God exists but isn't involved, which is deism. Sort of like that idea that the watchmaker builds the watch, winds it up, and then sets it aside, lets it run as long as it can. And the Bible shows us that moral therapeutic deism is fake Christianity. It's a fake gospel because it won't build real faith that lasts a lifetime, the way that following Jesus will, the way that digging into scriptures and finding out who the real Jesus is and what Jesus asks of us. It's far deeper. His love is far greater. And it's also more challenging than moral therapeutic deism can stand up to. Another weak gospel as a church we may have inadvertently communicated is what we call golden rule Christianity. You're used to this. You've heard it. Luke 6, 31, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That is a great basis for caring for others, but it's not a great basis for all of our life of faith. They found that people who just stick with this as the whole basis of their faith have less faith maturity, read the Bible less, attend worship less, talk less about their faith and struggles, and respond less to burning social issues around them. This is not a robust enough gospel to carry us through all the challenges we face in our own lives and in society. So what is a more robust communication of the gospel that will help the next generation? One that helps faith stick builds a faith that I call all-in faith. It's relational. It's real for a lifetime. Some folks call it sticky faith because it sticks to us. It lasts for us. Our scripture reading today was powerful. Listen again to John 1. The word become, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have received grace upon grace. What does that grace look like? Or the message translation says, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. That helps me picture it. What is it like 
for Jesus, who is the word, to be moved into my neighborhood? How would Jesus interact with those whom I meet every day, those whom I love, those whom nobody loves? What would it look like? In a few minutes, you will meet some of our new, na- um, new members, new neighbors too, people of uh, all different generations. You'll meet someone who's been a lifetime Presbyterian, back for generations their family has. You'll meet people new to this country, a child of missionaries, musicians, authors, someone who even said one of their greatest things to do in a church is chop vegetables for events. I won't tell you who it is because you'll have to talk to them and find out. But one of the families, Phil and Amy Timberlake, said that when COVID began, when the pandemic shut them down and they were walking around the neighborhood, they began to have a longing for a neighborhood church where they might actually worship where they lived and possibly run into others who are part of the church, not just because they're gathered on Sunday, but because they're active and caring for one another in their neighborhood. And this place became an important part of their faith journey. Jesus' saving message of life, abundant life, in this neighborhood continues to be powerful. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, but we communicate him differently for each new generation. So what we're talking about today is not your grandmother's gospel. It's not that Jesus isn't the same and that her faith wasn't valid. It's that how do we talk about it differently? I suggest there's three communication shifts that will help us build faith that lasts. So the first is more talk about Jesus, less talk about abstract beliefs. Because the next generation are really interested and drawn to the person of Jesus, what it looks like to encounter Jesus in the Gospels, people who met him on the road, how their lives were changed. That's much more interesting than talking about becoming a Christian or Christianity in general, or these sorts of abstract prospects. Now I know some folks of a generation may have been trained in evangelization. Nothing wrong with it. How many of you remember the four spiritual laws or the bridge illustration? Some of you might have learned that in college. It may be important to your life of faith. But we're talking about a shift from these tried and tested evangelistic methods because students are looking more for story than for methods. They want to say, what is the good story that I can live into, that Jesus models, that Jesus invites me into? So let's talk about what it looks like to follow Jesus, what it looks like when we're walking, following, when we are in Jesus' love and forgiveness, we're living it out, when we're struggling, when we're having good days, when we're being challenged, that we all know that we are loved and treasured, God's precious child, just like baby Cameron is. So the second shift is more talk about the redemptive narrative and less on formulas. Not that there's linear steps to attaining the Christian life and having a good reputation as a Christian, but instead, We want to use stories to talk about God's work in the world. For example, we talked about a story from the Old Testament this summer and fall. We talked about God's people on a journey, right? 
But the Old Testament, parts of it can feel disjointed or like a random puzzle designed for an ancient lit 101 class. But instead, we can talk about it as the story of an unlikely family and God who refuses to let them go to their own ruin. And that family is our family. When people can see our own story located within God's story, our lives and the work that we do in the world and in the church gain greater meaning. So our gospel stories especially begin with a real baby born to real human parents whose names we know. We know the names of their grandparents and great-grandparents. We know where they lived. As John Gospel says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the third shift is more talk about abundant life now, what it looks like to live out faith now, and less about heaven later. Not that that's not an important reassurance, what the old hymn says, the sweet by and by, but that's not what we need to lead with because that's not where the next generation lives. Remember their three burning questions? That isn't one of them. What will happen later? They're still thinking about now. So we talk about here and now faith. How will we live out God's story right now? Jesus promises. He said, I came to give you life and life abundantly. So what can that look like even in the midst of human struggles? And what does Jesus hope and expect for us? What is God's plan? Micah 6.8 says, that God asks us to act justly and love mercy and walk humbly with your God. Sometimes when people that I know or in my family or in my churches complain about the next generation and how they're not doing things the same way or not caring about the same things, I often say, watch out, because they are living vital faith in a way that you might not recognize but they could challenge the best of us in the way that they are trying to live out Jesus' call to take care of the least of these. Look again at Jesus' story. The next generation cares passionately about living that out. And then to build relationships with youth, sometimes we who are in traditional churches, perhaps even a church that looks beautiful and majestic, might say, oh, we're just never, it's never going to work because we're not cool enough. Well, what we say is that we don't need to be cool, we need to be warm. What do I need by warm? It's interpersonal warmth, it's warmly engaging. This should help us because the research shows that it's just a myth, that a church needs to look like, oh, say a cool coffee shop atmosphere with a big band and pyrotechnics. Instead, it's the relationships with people who love students and children, who live out God's story. The basic question is, can I help my kids know someone else who knows God so it doesn't just come from me? I'm a lifer. I grew up in the church that started in my grandparents' basement. I went to Christian college. I worked at Christian summer camps. And at one point, I wondered, have I been brainwashed? And then I looked around and I thought, no, I know this person that knows Jesus and this person who definitely is like Jesus and this person. And that was part of my story, people who loved me and asked about me and cheered for me. This church and any church can choose to be intentional about that. 
to point to Jesus and his invitation to live into God's bigger story and abundant life today. The next generation longs for real relational connection. Maybe that is your grandmother's gospel after all. It's just what we talk about. Let's think about. Let's not communicate faith as a series of abstract propositions. It's not simply knowledge to be passed on, as if we could open a kid's skull and dump knowledge straight into their brain. That's not how it works, especially not in Sunday school. Let's seek to become a church that is willing to accept young people where they are and authentically walk with them into adulthood in light of God's grace and in light of meeting them where they are, what they think they need. This morning on the way here, I was listening to a Christian station and heard a song by Brian Fowler called, What Do I Need? And it says, I need more trust and less, uh, let's see, what is it? Answers, more trust and fewer answers. I need more promises and less truth, more presence and less truth. And I need, what was the third thing? I need more of you, Jesus. Kids are looking for more presence and less truth out of our mouths. It's not that Jesus isn't the way, the truth, and the life. We know he is. But what do we lead with? We lead that Jesus is with the way and the life. That's where you begin your conversation. And along the way, we can trust that students who read the word and who listen to the spirit, who pray, will begin to be convicted of the truth and of their own sinfulness. They're here for the prayer of confession. They get it too. But that's not where we start with. We start with loving presence. Jesus as the abundant life. God's great big no matter what love. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more. Nothing you can do to make God love you less. Just like this beautiful baby. Just like each of these beautiful babies that you have grown up into beautiful adults. So how can we become fully present as adults who care? The image, the metaphor, is sitting at the curb of a young person's life. Have you ever watched a parade go by or in the middle of a walk or a block party, you just sat down to talk someone on the curb? That's the image we have in our life, sitting at the curb of a young person's life. In that posture, you're equal. It's hard to give a lecture. It's hard to be insistent or assert your power over someone else if you're sitting next to them on the curb. And how do you do that? Well, here's some ideas that the research shows. Affirm what you appreciate instead of judging the next generation. Ask questions instead of stereotyping or assuming you understand. Ask how they feel about big issues that also concern you. You might have some really interesting conversations these days about war and peace, about asylum seekers, about so many things that we are interested in, but the next generation is incredibly passionate about. And instead of giving them your answers, what I think, brainstorm, ask questions about what they think and how their possible responses might work out, how it might play out. Gently bringing faith in. 
Talking about times, perhaps, when faith was real in your challenges, but only once you've earned that right to be heard. And lastly, shower them with unconditional love, no matter what their response is. It's far better to listen, to ask what they think, and begin with that starting point. In closing, my favorite role has often been storytelling at VBS. And one day I was telling my favorite story of the empty tomb and how Mary came running to tell everybody the story. After she encountered an angel, she ran to tell everybody the good news. He is risen. And one girl said to me, she was third grader, she was new to the church, she said, what? Jesus is alive? Why didn't anyone ever tell me this before? <laughs> that is awesome, she said. She was so excited, and so she asked for a Bible. And she started looking at it when we turned to the pages. She said, Jesus is risen from the dead. Now that's cool. And she started telling her mom, look, Jesus did this. Look, Jesus did that. Right in that moment. We're missing out on that excitement if we're not looking at how to make faith vital for the next generation. I'm not standing here to criticize you. There are brilliant moments of how faith has been real in this place. I'm just presenting that it might be time for us to ask again questions of what matters most to us and what are we willing to do for the sake of the next generation? What are we willing to give? What are we willing to learn from the children and youth in our midst that will help us move forward? I believe that God gives us everything we need for God's church, but it's not all in the building. Sometimes it's with the youth, sometimes it's with our neighbors. How can we partner to find where God wants us to take next, to go next? Any good future for a church that grows young needs to engage the next generation in new ways. What might help? One of the ways is to look at warmth killers, ways that warmth is sucked out of our lives when we're too tired or we're not watching our tone or we get let technology get in the way. But the key is for us to think that we not only talk about what we're saved from, but we talk about what we're saved for. As Fuller Youth Institute Steve Arg says, you're made in the image of God. When you wake up, remember God loves you. Before you experience any failure or any success, God loves you. You are invited to participate in God's world and make God's world more beautiful. You are invited to be a blessing to those around you, and you are enough. Pastor Mindy Coates says, God's grace is overflowing and drips into every area of life. So let's take God up on God's offer of unconditional, unending grace for each one of us. These are new messages of grace for a new generation. So we, as caring adults, can model that for the next generation, talking about our God who walks alongside us, who's present with loving, forgiving grace, robust grace that lasts for a lifetime. Jesus, who is willing to sit at the curb of a young person's life. And hopefully, so are we. 
being all in, loving, forgiving, just like Jesus. Amen.